Welcome to our show today. We have Stevie Ingram, and Stevie's going to educate us about gender and sexually expansive communities and how we can support our loved ones who are going through the exploration and or transition of what their gender identity is and possibly what their sexuality is. Now, the reason I think this is so important for us as yoga people to think about and look into, I want to show you something that I was researching. I'm always trying to keep up on the subject and make sure that I am doing my best to educate myself. There is an article that I'll put in the show notes from Harvard Divinity School on the third gender of hedras, which is basically the gender that's outside of male or female that only recently in Western society been accepting and exploring. But in the Hindu society, these people whom might be called non-binary, binary means two, man and woman, so a non-binary gender expression have played an important role in their society for over 2000 years. And on April 5th, 2014, India made this third gender or this non-binary gender a legal way to express oneself in the world. Even though they've honored them in many ways, basically having hijras come to maybe wedding ceremonies or baby blessings, different roles that they've played, now it is legal. And I know there's still a lot of bias and there's still a lot of prejudice and harm that's being done. But it's interesting to think that the hedras have had this important role in society for thousands of years. Now, I was reading this and it was such a shock to me that when we go to the Hindu holy texts like the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu hero Arjuna becomes a third gender. I need to look into that. I was not aware of that. So that is a really interesting point that I'm going to do some more study on. So this is just to say that in India and many, many other indigenous cultures all over the world, it has been a natural part of society and life that people would be non-binary and not having to fit into the male and female. And Stevie gets into this, why it happened that we became very binary and all the different factors that went into that. I'll let her tell you about that. But where we really went in this podcast was to really look at the lived experience of the person who is having this gender and sexual expansive lived experience and how do we support them as parents, as loved ones, as brothers, sisters, as yoga therapists, yoga teachers, as friends, what do we need to know? What do we need to educate ourselves about? And how can we be supportive and not let our fear for their safety, for our safety, or just fear of the unknown? How can we move through that? How can we use our yoga practice to be with those uncomfortable feelings inside of ourselves so that we can be here to support others in our community? So I think it's just a fabulous conversation, a brave conversation. And I think we should just get right into it. So welcome to Stevie Ingram. 
Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well, how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. And we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. All right, let's get into today's episode. Welcome, Stevie. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You're looking gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> we just had a nice discussion about how we curl our hair and um, all the stuff, so can't help but I am not paid to say this, but for all the ladies looking for this hair curl, beach waver is <laughs> how I did this. It's good. So. <laughs> all right. So today we're going to talk about gender and sexually expansive communities and how to build them, how to make people feel safe in their bodies, their minds, and in society. Where do you want to start today, Stevie? Yeah, so this is really a follow-up podcast to my initial podcast with you, I think, at some point in 2021. Lockdown. During lockdown. And I was just really kind of starting out doing this work more publicly around that time. And maybe it was May, April or May when we I can tell you how it happened. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> we were on lockdown and I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw you and all the great work that you were doing on Instagram at the time around this topic. And I was like, who is this person? And contacted you through Instagram and we became friends and have been connected ever since. And we've written these articles for the International Association of Yoga Therapists and you teach in our yoga therapy program. And I think it's just evolving. We had the part one of our podcast in 2020. So I'll put that in the show notes also. Yeah, I hadn't at the initial time that we talked, I was doing something called Queer Story Time, of which we'll have a little announcement about a little later. But I was just interviewing queer and trans people to share their experiences. I started that, I believe, in 2020. And I just, given my own experiences growing up queer and trans, and also as a Christian pastor's kid, I felt the need that it was important for the world to hear queer and trans stories. So I didn't quite know at the time how important that was going to be. But as the years have progressed and as we see what's going on in the world with almost 600 anti-LGBT laws being implemented, not only here within the United States, but also around the world, is becoming tremendously important for the world to actually hear queer and trans stories. And so doing that little Instagram live, I believe I did about 60 episodes. That was the impetus for me to begin writing more formally on the topic. And as a yoga therapist, 
you know, I thought one way that I could do that is by writing for Yoga Therapy Today magazine. And so back in January of 2022, I wrote the first article, which I have here in writing, although Amy's going to write it on the screen. screen. Yeah. So that links to this in the show notes too. Wonderful. Yeah. So that article is called An Opportunity to Lead Caring for Gender and Sexually Expansive Communities. And this article was intended to bring education and bring awareness to the struggles that queer and trans people have in their lives and throughout their lives. And, you know, even though this article is written somewhat from a yoga therapy lens, I want every other healthcare professional to know that this article is for you as well, even though I'm writing it from my perspective as a yoga therapist, because this first article especially just goes over common misconceptions about the queer and trans experience. And this article was foundational and important, especially for yoga therapy and really all of healthcare, because Talking about gender and sexuality as healthcare professionals has always been socially and culturally taboo. And, you know, when we're not talking about these issues publicly and having outward conversations about them only perpetuates harm against our community. So I found it super important to get out there, you know, through my work with Queer Storytime to get out there and actually publish an article or two or a couple on this topic so that we as a profession can have some level of foundational knowledge to be able to address the lived experiences of queer and trans people. And I want to thank you. I mean, when you look at an article like that, you've condensed so much information into six pages, like that kind of article I know could take six months to a year of concentrated effort and life force. And so we're going to talk about your second article that you gave a second gift to us, but I just want to acknowledge how much work it takes to give something like that. It was (laughs) that first article was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I would say, you know, I found through my own writing that it's also helped me process my own experiences, which is like doing this work has also been very healing for me personally, because I get to say things that have always needed to be said that just haven't been said, not only, you know, because of my own experiences, but I think many queer and trans people that don't have a platform would want to say these things as well. And a lot of the themes that I brought up in my first article were a lot of topics that were brought up on Queer Storytime. Mm. So it just kind of naturally flowed from one another. And, you know, I received a lot of emails and private messages on Instagram, just on social media in general saying, wow, you know, thank you for writing this article, especially among queer and trans people, but also among our allies you know, that are grateful to see this work being done. Because I think a lot of people do know that, like I said, that this is has been kind of a controversial topic when it really shouldn't be. Gender and sexuality are an inherent aspect of the human experience. And, you know, especially as holistic practitioners, as yoga therapists, we are viewing 
all human beings from a holistic perspective. And gender and sexuality is inherently a part of that, just as human physiology is, just as someone's hair color, eye color, whatever it is. These are all inherent aspects of ourselves. And it's important that healthcare professionals start acknowledging that and having open conversation and discussion about these topics. You know, Stevie, you had turned me on to this book that I'm just crazy about called The Art of Vedic Counseling by David Frowley and friends. And one of the chapters in there is on sexuality. And I was kind of surprised, like, oh, wait a minute, in Indian culture, wouldn't they not want to talk about that? But it's interesting how India actually has accepted this for 2000 years and talked about it and, you know, granted only recent laws in you know 2014 or so have made it legal to be transgender in india but it kind of seems like they're even ahead of us on this we just don't want to talk about it well and this is one of the major things that i think needs to be talked about it's not something that i got to talk a lot about in the articles that i've written i do think it's important maybe in future articles to write about this, but the impact of colonialism on the world and, you know, as Europeans went and kind of conquered the entire world, so to speak, they projected a set of norms, especially in regards to gender and sexuality onto various cultures, India, Africa, and other places around the world they dictated that no this is you know a man has a penis a woman has a vagina and that's it there's no other gender or self-expression outside of that and that's just so so harmful especially knowing the fact that you know native american culture indian culture african culture all of these indigenous cultures that have been living on these lands for thousands of years they inherently accepted and acknowledged the essence and divinity of queer and trans people for thousands of years. And so for colonialists to come along and say, no, this is not the real truth or the real reality is so harmful. And we're seeing that play out today, especially in the US and somewhat in Canada and also around the world as people begin to grapple with these colonial ideas of gender and sexuality that just inherently have no basis in reality. And don't you think that was a means to like divide and conquer and have this binary gender identity? You're either this or that, you're a male or you're female. And of course, the males and the patriarchy are in charge. And as females in air quotes, we want to cozy up to power and make sure we're going to stay safe. I mean, I just think it, it goes beyond colonialism. Oh yeah. Like power structures. Yeah. My understanding is that patriarchy is an inherent aspect of colonialism. Even look at many Eastern cultures. I watched a documentary that was super fascinating talking about gender, sexuality and relationship structures. I can't remember what country it was in, but there's a country that's primarily a Buddhist country, that's primarily a matriarchal country in which polyandry is. So that's just another acknowledgement that there's other expressions 
of relationships beyond monogamy, which is a concept that I mentioned in one of my articles that, you know, that's also another thing that needs to be acknowledged is that there are relationships that go beyond monogamous ones. Many women in this Buddhist culture have multiple husbands. So it's just a lot of the education that I do is not to instigate disagreement or controversy. A lot of the work that I do is really just to bring a baseline level of awareness to the fact that these colonial beliefs have been instilled in all of us. Many of us were raised to believe that relationships are, you know, strictly monogamous and heterosexual and anything outside of that doesn't exist, which as I've stated multiple times already just is not factually true, which is why I love the phrase gender and sexually expansive because there is this whole expansive nature to gender, sexuality, and relationships. Can I just bring it down to us right here, right now, to have you acknowledge all that you've said and teach us today and through the articles also that you've written. I know at least 10 mothers that have come to me that have been directly affected by your work that their children are going through transitions and exploration and expansiveness. They're feeling terrified about their child's safety and about the new relationship and the pronouns and how is my beloved going to make it through this world. And just in our yoga therapy program, we have several parents that have transgender children that honestly, we're completely shut down about it at the beginning. They just didn't understand it. They didn't know what was happening. And then through listening to you and reading articles, and they've come to understand how to be in relationship with their beloved child. So yeah. it's, it's, it's real. To my eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so important. Uh, and this, you know, this is the importance of this work is that this work has been so stifled by the dominant narratives that are predominant, you know, that have been perpetuated by colonialism, that I get emotional about hearing that because it's so important. I think a lot of people see my work as controversial and it's not. We are bringing language to experiences that people have not spent a lot of time thinking about. And just hearing those mothers having this evolution because of the work that I'm doing is really heartwarming and touching and makes me know that I need to continue this work because there's many other, especially healthcare professionals that need to be talking about this. One of the things that I brought up in my second article is something that was openly discussed in the almost 300 page document that is the new standards of care by the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, WPATH for short. WPATH, as I mentioned in this article, mentions in their new standards of care that, yeah, right here, that training in regards to gender and sexuality is very limited within healthcare training programs globally. And so it just points to the glaring need that healthcare training programs need to get on board 
with offering healthcare professionals training in this area. And the statement essentially that they make is that no healthcare training programs worldwide require training in gender and sexuality, which I can fully 100% acknowledge that. For those of you that don't know, I'm a yoga therapist, but I am also in the process of becoming a naturopathic physician. And I'm making no slight against my medical school, but they have no training in gender and sexuality. And that's just an acknowledgement of reality. It's not just within the naturopathic profession. It is globally around the world. There is literally no training for healthcare professionals on this subject. And so right now we're kind of bootstrapping, so to speak, this subject area that has gone repressed for many decades because of colonial beliefs and mindsets that have been perpetuated. Um, Can I interrupt you on that point? I think that's a big issue for the moms that I'm getting to know that are experiencing this and dads too, I'm sure. They don't even know where to go to get their child health care, first of all, but where are safe places that they can be real about what's going on. And do you have any suggestions for those families? Yeah, it's this is part of the issue is that I'll answer that question. But part of the major issue is now that we have these laws being implemented largely by conservative right wing legislators that are implementing laws to the degree that trans people and queer people literally cannot access gender and sexually affirming health care. On the sexual sides of things, access to PrEP, which is a medication that prevents HIV, is being blocked. Also, access to gender affirming care is being blocked for youth and for adults. So it's just completely disingenuous and points to the fact that we need education in this area and on these topics and we need to be consciously out there discussing that so in regards to the question of where can parents go to find resources a lot of this well i would refer them to my articles number one number two there is the organization called wpath the world professional association of transgender health granted that resource is going to be a little bit more focused towards clinicians. So parents that aren't clinicians may struggle to understand what's being discussed because it's very scientific. Another great resource is the, I believe it's the University of San Francisco. I know that I mentioned a couple resources in my second article specifically for this purpose. Yeah, so besides WPATH, there is the National LGBTQIA Plus Health Education Center. There's also the Harvard Count Way Library. The American Psychological Association has a lot of information on their website. And also, as I was just saying, the University of California at San Francisco Transgender Care website is a great website for resources as well. And I tell them to schedule a private appointment with you 
yeah. their options and have you support themselves and their family through this. Yeah, a big part of the work that I've come to learn that's needed in the world that I recognize that parents almost need someone to consult with them in order to help. First of all, just come to a fundamental understanding that this is a natural part of being human because of all of us having to process, self-reflect, and come to an understanding that these colonial mindsets do not serve us or any of us really, and that they inherently harm us. So a lot of my work has become around not only helping LGBT people themselves find resources and access to care and kind of navigating this crazy world where there's 600 plus anti-LGBT laws, especially within the United States, but also helping parents navigate it and also helping healthcare professionals navigate this. Because when I say that we're kind of bootstrapping this entire scenario, <laughs> we really are. There are not many people within healthcare, let alone integrative health and integrative medicine, that are talking about these topics and educating people on these topics. So, yeah, if anybody does need help, schedule an appointment. <laughs> I just look at the number of mothers and fathers that have come to me in the last two years that their children are going through this life expansion. To think that we don't have healthcare measures in place is extraordinarily distressing. Yeah. And the WPATH, the organization that I keep talking about, is one of the worldwide organizations that is quite literally spearheading this. But the thing that I continually acknowledge is they can't be the only ones. I can't be the only one, which is why I'm taking it on upon myself to educate other people. Because if we're having these conversations in isolated spaces, then we're not doing any good for queer and trans people by keeping the conversation isolated to spaces such as yoga therapy training programs or naturopathic medical schools. It needs to expand well beyond that into every single healthcare training program on planet Earth because it's just not required. And there are some institutions, some training programs like yourself and other programs that are taking on the responsibility to make space within their healthcare training program to offer this. And that is extraordinarily important. I encourage other healthcare training programs, whether you're an acupuncture program, a yoga therapy program, or other healthcare professions, I encourage you to reach out to me so that I can help you set up a curriculum that's conducive to communicating knowledge around gender and sexuality so that those that you're training can be competent in these areas. So with that in mind, I mean, you've told me some of the internal experience that happens when someone is expanding and diversifying and figuring out how to make their insides match their outsides. And you know, I've listened to almost every episode of Queer Storytime. But one of the big problems that I know you would love to help us understand more is this idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria that it seems like nobody's talking about. I mean, I really have not heard about this. So this yeah. would be an example of if a parent wanted to talk to you about this, they could come and do a session with you to try to understand what is this rapid onset gender dysphoria thing that my child is experiencing. Can you yeah. talk about that? 
So rapid onset gender dysphoria is actually a non-medical, non-scientific perspective on the rapid rise in awareness of trans and non-binary people. And quite frankly, a lot of the people that are implementing these anti-trans laws are the ones that have come up with this concept of rapid onset gender dysphoria, which to my knowledge and awareness, there are only one or two studies on this. And I just happened yesterday to be listening, scrolling through YouTube and listening to one of the researchers that produced this second study. And this second study was so controversial that it was actually retracted from the scientific journal in which they were trying to get it published in. So talk um, about, so I had it wrong. Rapid onset gender dysphoria is not something that happens inside of an individual. It's no. like a politicized term no. being used to bully and to hold people yeah. down from expressing their true nature. Absolutely. To make it more clear, rapid onset gender dysphoria is terminology that has been amplified by conservative right wing groups that are promoting these anti-trans laws. And the reason that they have developed this language, so to speak, is because there has been a rapid rise and awareness in queer and trans awareness. And what conservative-minded people and even some in healthcare see is that children and youth are just spontaneously becoming trans, which is antithetical to my own experience as a trans person and also the experience of many other trans people. The thing that I want to point to here is the first study I actually just read on the website MedPage today. It was a popular website among healthcare professionals, especially among medical professionals. MedPage today was talking about the fact that the first study that came out on rapid onset gender dysphoria, what was extraordinarily problematic about that study was that they interviewed parents on The moms that I've gotten to know and dads, their first pushback is, oh my gosh, this is a fad. All the kids are doing it. I don't think this is really who my child is. I think they're just going through a phase and I don't want them to do any kind of hormones or gender affirming surgery or any of that because they're going to change their mind. They're going to come to their senses. And these are really loving parents who are pretty liberal, most of them. So one thing that I want to say here, because it's so frustrating to me, because, you know, I think a lot of people know that before I began to recognize my own, like, true identity in my trans experience, I identified as a gay man, but that never felt 
right to me, to be quite honest, for all the years that I identified that way. And I didn't have a language to understand my own lived experience and my own femininity that I literally felt since I was a child. Mm. And so the thing about rapid onset gender dysphoria is it's not based in reality. Many trans people have an awareness that there's an incongruency between their gender identity and their physical body from a very young age. And I had that from a very young age. It's just that I grew up in a society that said if you were assigned male at birth and you had any level of femininity within you, that that meant that you were a gay man. But again, that falls short because there are some gay men that are extraordinarily masculine and don't have a feminine bone in their body. (laughs) So we're kind of parsing through these gender narratives. And another thing about the rapid onset gender dysphoria is that that language and verbiage is a perspective that's coming from the outside. It's not coming from a trans person's internalized lived experience. And the reason that I brought up the fact that I identified as a gay man previously is because I see a lot, a substantial amount of the anti-trans rhetoric that we hear going on against trans people is actually rhetoric that was used against gays and lesbians between 20 and 50 years ago. I know back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or even prior to those times, like way back, being homosexual was not talked about. Being homosexual at the time was the thing that was seen as taboo. You know, I know they didn't have this language for it back then, but back during those times, we literally could have had the language rapid onset homosexuality because At that time, when people would come out as gay or lesbian, literally parents would say, this is a phase you're going through. You're not really gay or lesbian. That is the same exact narrative being used against trans people now. And whereas we didn't have the language of rapid onset homosexuality, that is exactly what was happening is like people cisgender heterosexual people were projecting their ideals of their child or their idea of what their child should be onto their child. And so when there was that incongruency between, you know, the child saying I'm gay or I'm lesbian and the parent having this idea of what their child should be with that incongruency created that inner turmoil and conflict within the parent and cause the development of this narrative that, oh, this is just a phase that they're going through. And that's very much what is being inflicted onto trans people right now. I think we need to acknowledge there's a whole spectrum of really good people that are worried about the safety of their child, all the way to parents who just don't get it, don't understand it, don't want to understand it. Maybe they have a belief structure that is anti-gender affirming. You know, there's this whole spectrum. And I would imagine you can speak to this, but if you were to work with a family or parents and a child, I would imagine each one of those situations would be quite different. One would be basically helping the parent to connect with their child and listen to their child and understand their child's inner experience. But another one could literally be like, look, you're harming your child. Absolutely. 
And this is why yoga therapy is so important. <laughs> yoga therapy calls all of us to look into our own true nature and which is really an act of liberation of moksha as it's called in yoga. I think that this is where, especially on the parental level, that it's very common for parents to have expectation or a vision for what their child will look like in the future. But the problem and the harm is caused by if your vision for your child in the future contrasts an inherent aspect of who they are as a human being, that is what continues to be harmful, is that them as the parent cannot shift their view and perspective that their child has every right as a living, breathing human being to become a self-actualized, self-realized, to use a modern psychological terminology. They have a right to become a self-actualized and self-realized human being. And that is what parents should be striving for to allow their parents this inherent discovery process. You know, I think about myself as a future parent, if I ever decide to have children, thinking about how to talk about gender and sexuality with them and knowing what I know now as a parent, I would want them to be able to explore their sexuality in a safe way. Because what happens so much in my generation of the LGBT community and older generations is that this stuff was so repressed that people end up going out and doing things that maybe are not so safe because of the trauma and because of not having a space to talk about these topics safely. So it's a liberatory act for a parent to allow their child to explore their sexuality safely and also to explore their gender identity. And maybe that exploration means that they are not queer or trans, but guess what? They will be a better human being having been allowed that capacity and that safety to be able to explore these aspects of their human experience. And I just want to spend a quick moment unpacking that because honestly, there was a period of time ways back that I had not even considered that the sexuality and the needs around that are a completely separate issue from gender identity. I think those two things just get mushed together yes. and so many different combinations of gender identity, sexuality in this gender expansive community that we're hoping to used to support people. So for those listening, if this is new to you, like you might need to go back and look at Stevie's first articles where it kind of breaks down the, the terms. My mind was blown because it had been so strongly linked to this colonial way of basically there's two genders and that's it. And you only have sex with the opposite gender. And, you know, it is mind blowing when you start to really consider all of these things. Right. Yeah. I think on the sexuality front, I've often thought to myself as a parent and of course, as a person that's out publicly speaking about gender and sexuality in the world, I would rather my child explore their sexuality and the safety of my home in a place that I know they're safe than be out in the world with God knows who, you know, exploring God knows what 
that may potentially be unsafe for them. Parents have boundaries around that? Could they say no matter what gender identity or sexual preference my child has, I would prefer they not explore that anywhere until age blah, blah, blah. I mean, do you feel like a family could decide on those boundaries together? I do. Although I do want to acknowledge at the same time, because it's, (laughs) I'm just going to be completely open about this. I think we need to be when talking about these, you know, because this stuff has been so repressed. And I hope my sister doesn't mind me talking about her on this podcast, but I know that my sister had sex at 15 years old. I did not have sex because I was so condemned for the feelings I was having in regards to my sexuality at the time. I did not have sex until I was in college at 21 years of age. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing that we see and a huge topic of conversation in the LGBT community is that because of the conditions that we are raised under and the feelings that we have, a lot of LGBT people are almost stunted in their growth by five to 10 years among their cisgender heterosexual peers. And so in terms of parents, I think parents really have to do a lot of self-reflection in thinking about how can I raise my child so that they feel a sense of safety in who they are and so that they feel a sense of safety in exploring who they are. And part of that is going to be exploring gender and sexuality. You and know, realistic. I mean, I see so many parents are like, oh, you don't even want to know what I was doing at 15 and 16. Exactly. My children, they're not going to touch anything. Like, let's get realistic about what's going to happen when want it or not. Exactly. And these conversations, right? Absolutely. Another thing is like, This conversation has been so repressed that parents don't even feel that they can like meet this conversation with some semblance of reality. The reality is that children are going to start to have sexual feelings around 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And the older that they get into their teenage years, they're going to want to act on those feelings. So, you know, and then of course, when it comes to sex education, sex education needs to extend beyond someone assigned female at birth has sex with someone assigned male at birth. That's not always the case. And so parents really need to be thinking about as their children approach these teenage years about, you know, how can I allow my child to feel most self-expressed and most safe and exploring their various identities. Because I think that's a much more trauma-informed approach, especially, you know, I always say that we can't guarantee safety, but we can maximize it, or we can have the intention to maximize it as much as humanly possible. Yeah, the felt sense that I've come to is that if I ever have children, I would much rather them be exploring these things in my presence and for them to feel open to openly discuss these topics so that they can realize as they are self-actualizing and self-realizing that gender and sexuality is literally an inherent aspect of being human, even at the ages of 12, 13, 14, 15 and beyond. You know, I I have a friend who... I guess in the library at their school and her children are like six years old and five years old. There was a book about homosexuality and 
Tom falls in love with Jerry and, you know, like, and she was very upset. She said, I really don't want my young children learning about this yet. So do you think there's a, a lower age limit that if a kid could pull that out of a library and, you know, open it up and see pictures, do you feel like there's any harm to that? Or do you think that kid should go home and say, mom, look what I saw at school today. Tell me about this. I don't think that there is any harm in children seeing content that is age appropriate. Mm. And that is a stance that I think any queer and trans people would take. It is okay for little children to know that some of their friends have two daddies or two mommies or that one of their friend's parents is transgender. Like that is age appropriate. I mean, so much of the anti-queer and trans rhetoric that's creating and amplifying these laws and amplifying these harmful conversations is basically perpetuating the idea that queer and trans people are inherently sexual. Well, guess what? Cisgender heterosexual people are sexual too. Sexuality is an inherent aspect of the human experience. So of course you're not going to show a child or you know a three-year-old or a 10-year-old or you know maybe even a teenager you're not going to show them pornography that's not what's being promoted and asked about here but when the narrative is that queer and trans people are inherently sexual and when our human lived experience is often sexualized in the narratives about us that often leads to this uncomfortableness with parents about, oh my God, my child's being introduced to material about gender and sexuality. And isn't that the entire idea of education is to introduce children to topics at an age appropriate manner? You're not going to introduce a child, a kindergartner to astrophysics that's not an appropriate level of knowledge for them, but you can introduce them to the fact that we have a solar system, that there are stars in the universe, topics that, you know, big picture ideas that they can begin to understand. And then of course, as they age, you can gain more layers and more complexity to these topics, no matter what the topic is. I think that's the thing with rhetoric, right? As we go to the extreme of showing pictures to a three-year-old and think that's the norm instead of this more complex approach where obviously that's not happening. And as a child grows and learns and starts hearing it at school and hearing people talk about it and seeing it on TV, the age appropriate time will reveal itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's just what parents need to keep in mind in these narratives and rhetoric flying around is that no one on the queer or trans side of things wants their children to be exposed to pornography. That is what I think is being perpetuated is that kindergartners are going to be exposed to that. I really strongly, especially to the yogically minded people and to the parents, I ask that you use your yoga practice to deeply reflect on whether the rhetoric that you're hearing is true. Because I think if you use your yoga and meditation practice the way that it's meant to be, 
you should be questioning these things. You should be questioning these narratives and this rhetoric that is flying around everywhere in our politics and is probably only going to worsen as we come around to this new election cycle into 2024. So use your yoga practice to question the dominant narratives that are floating around in your brain. Because one of the things that I reflect on with social media is that this negative rhetoric is so easily prompted. The most controversial thing on social media always gets the most attention. And that's where we as yoga practitioners have to draw back. And this idea of pratyahara in yoga, which is withdrawing of the senses, where we have to practice withdrawing from that sensory extremism and really deeply going with inside ourselves and reflecting on these narratives and asking ourselves whether they're true. So that brings me to one of my last really hard questions. And Stevie doesn't know any of these questions. So we know each other well enough to just be honest and authentic here. But I always give permission to say, hey, Amy, that's another time. We don't need to go there today because I know we're running short on time. Do you think there is an age appropriate time for a young person to start receiving hormones or having gender affirming surgery? Do you feel like that should be after they are of 18, the age of 18. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think a lot of parents are asking me that, that my 15-year-old wants to go in this direction, and I feel unsure about supporting that, or if we should wait until they're officially an adult and they have their own healthcare decisions to make at that time. That's a great question that I don't mind answering because it's a hot topic right now. What I want parents to understand and anyone else listening that cares <laughs> to listen, whether you're a parent or not, because we're all kind of parsing through this culture war that is gender and sexuality right now. I'm going to talk about this more broadly. So I'm not going to quite 100% answer your question directly, but what I want people to understand is that children are not just walking into medical clinics and saying, I want hormones now, give them to me. That's not how this works. There are layers upon layers upon layers in regards to proper procedures for dealing with youth that are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. First of all, and that's a point that I should make too, is that there is a formal psychological therapeutic process where youth need to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And so the thing that I love about transgender healthcare that I think might resonate with many holistically minded people, and by that I mean yoga people, is that transgender healthcare and gender affirming healthcare and sexually affirming healthcare is inherently holistic. And by that I mean getting medical services for gender dysphoria, gender incongruency, whatever you want to call it, is not like going to the clinic for an upper respiratory infection. It's not like going to the doctor and saying, oh, I have these symptoms, um, I have watery eyes, I'm sneezing, my nose is running. And then the doctor just that day gives you medication to treat the upper respiratory infection. I think many people think that that's how gender affirming care works. And that's not at all the case. 
gender affirming care, there's, like I said, there's many layers to this. Youth, it's highly recommended that they be in therapy with a therapist or psychologist so that they can be in a space where they are adequately exploring their gender and sexuality with a third party person that is allowing them the space to talk about what they're feeling inside. So then the therapist, given defined criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the manual that psychologists use, will see if that person's experience aligns with what psychologists and scientists have deemed as gender dysphoria. And then if that is the case, that person will continue the therapeutic process with the psychologist, and then the psychologist will begin having conversation with that person's either endocrinologist or primary care physician to discuss what are ways in which we can best approach this child's experience of gender dysphoria. And so this can be a months-long process. This can be a years-long process. And so that's what I want the general audience that I'm speaking to to know is that gender-affirming care is not like standard medical care at all. It's very holistic in nature. You need to have consent among the child. You need to have consent among the parent. They need to have a relationship with a psychologist and a physician. If they have any mental health diagnoses, such as anxiety and depression, that needs to be well-managed. So there are many layers upon many layers to what happens in order to get a child to a place, whether we can even begin having the question of, do you want to go on hormones? You know, whatever else the psychologist and and physician deem is necessary to provide that child or that youth with gender affirming care. So I just ask that everybody, you know, think about that comparison of you going to the doctor being diagnosed with an upper respiratory infection and getting medication that day to take care of it. That's not at all how this works. I strongly wish that you just wash that out of your mind because it's just not conducive to reality. And this is all outlined in the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. This is all outlined in their standards of care, like the procedures by which we should be caring for transgender youth and children. And the other thing is, other than medicalization of trans people, which is what I'm talking about right now, we also can talk about socialization. Like socialization is another aspect of trans care as well. Just allowing the child to wear clothes that aligns with their gender identity or which allows them to feel self-expressed. Also allowing the child to change their name, allowing the child to use pronouns that align with their gender identity. Like these are all things that can happen prior to even having a conversation about medicalization. And also I think too, I'm wondering in my mind if I should bring this up because I don't want parents to think that medicalization in some circumstances is not necessary, but There are circumstances where trans people may feel fully self-expressed with a social transition Mm. and may not even need medical transition. But I say that with the acknowledgement that there are many trans people that do have severe and unrelenting gender dysphoria. Not all trans people, some trans people. And 
if you can tell that your child is being psychologically harmed by the fact that they have this gender incongruency, then that's definitely impetus for you to find them a psychologist, a competent psychologist that has training in working with queer and trans youth so that they can begin to assess and analyze and have conversation with your child or with the teenager about what their internalized experience is in regards to their gender identity so that we can essentially get them on the right path to allowing them to live the most embodied life possible. That's the ultimate goal, is that all of us as human beings are living embodied and living out our true nature. And if that means medical intervention and maybe later on in life surgical interventions, then that should be discussed. But we all need to have an awareness that trans medicine, because it's inherently holistic, I can't provide one straight answer to parents. I just know what the standards are and that there are these layers to providing gender affirming health care. So I hope that answers the question. It really did beautifully. It sounds to me like maybe the first step is getting the family the support and care they need to even consider the social expansion, you know, transition and possibly wearing different clothes, going by a different name like that would be a very first step in this process and the medical stuff is down the road. Yeah. And nobody in the trans community is advocating for children to be put on all these medications to receive surgeries. And that's why I didn't want to directly answer your question because there is no right way. There is the right way that is determined by the parent, by the transgender child and by that child's physician and psychologist. And you know, for people to be interjecting their, you know, ideas and saying, oh, transgender children are getting their genitalia cut off. That is just absolutely patently false. There's no scientific evidence to support that, that that is happening on a widespread scale. And can we have conversation about whether there's harm that is caused by children being on, there's something called precocious puberty in which children are put on puberty blockers. And basically that means like a child at six or eight, 10 years old, there's something physiologically happening that is causing them to enter puberty at a way earlier stage than is physiologically normal. So children that have precocious puberty are put on puberty blockers, which are the same medications that are used for transgender children that want to stop puberty so that they don't develop those secondary sex characteristics Um, such as developing breasts, developing facial hair, whatever the case may be. Are there side effects to these puberty blockers? Yes, but we also have to account for children that are experiencing extreme levels of gender dysphoria, and we have to outweigh those risks and benefits. So that's why I said, and that's one of the things that I love about trans medicine, is that it is inherently holistic from the start as compared to a physician just coming in and treating an upper respiratory infection, as I've been saying. And these risks and benefits are continuously weighed with the parent, with the child, with the physician, and with the psychologist. Children and teenagers are not just rapidly being put on puberty blockers or rapidly going into surgical procedures when they're teenagers. That's not at all the way that this happens. Again, using our yoga practice to question dominant narratives 
and consulting with people such as myself or others that have a deep level of knowledge and awareness on these topics so that you can begin the process and journey of self-reflecting and looking at your own beliefs and how that contrasts your child's self-expression and self-actualization doing the work within yourself to as we've talked about this entire time allowing your child to be who they are and to live into their embodied nature even if that means exploring their sexuality and exploring their gender identity i think you know as we wrap up that's the main message i'm getting from today is that the parents and the loved ones have as much or more inner work to do as the child or the the person who's it doesn't have to be a child it could be a 30 year old a 40 year old a 50 year old anyone who's really exploring their gender and sexual identity the family members around them have as much deep self-reflection work to do and calming of their autonomic nervous system for the fears that come up looking at their values and beliefs, as you said, helping their loved one become a self-actualized version of themselves, but doing that for yourself at the same time. Like, whew, there's a lot, lot going on here. There's a lot going on here. And this is exactly why yoga therapy itself is useful. And also, you know, even parents can benefit to seeing a yoga therapist, to seeing a psychologist, in addition to their child as well, or their teenager, or even their adult, because we're all continuously, all of us are self-actualizing all throughout life. That's what liberation and moksha is all about, is bringing awareness to our biases, bringing awareness to the ways in which we harm one another, being aware of the ways in which we harm ourselves, our loved ones, slowly shifting course so that we can be a better human being. So many people that are not hateful bigots, <laughs> that are questioning all these narratives. I really sincerely, from my heart to yours, ask you to question what it is that you hear in the media and get aligned with people that are doing this work with intentionality and from a liberatory perspective so that all of us can be in the community together and heal these dominant, oppressive, harmful narratives that are within ourselves and within the dominant culture, because that's how liberation happens as we start with ourselves, And then that goes out into the community by how we interact and by how we behave with our community at large. Maybe I think that's a great place to finish our ongoing conversation. I'm sure there will be a part three. I'll put part one in the show notes. So everyone can go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. And once again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this work, for using your life force to do this, because I know that the taxing nature on your nervous system, you're being, you know, you're taking a lot of heat. You're having people battle you right and left. You're trying to keep yourself in a sattvic balanced place while you do this really hard work in the world. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It is extraordinarily difficult mm -hmm. to be battling all of these conversations. Some days it feels more like a battle, but I wouldn't be doing this work. You know, this is my act of ahimsa to the world, I think, mm -hmm. is helping people see more clearly that 
all of what I've just said in this interview. So no, I just want to state this publicly. I've been told by several people that people feel fearful to talk to me about these subjects because they feel like in asking about it, that they might be harming me mm-hmm. as someone that is queer and trans. And that also is just continuing to perpetuate harm because this is, you know, I'm a person that's outwardly here in public willing to have these conversations with people. And I want people to know that as long as we can be open-minded and heart-centered, that I'm willing to have this conversation with anyone because I recognize that all of us are arriving to this conversation from different life experiences, different religious upbringing, different cultural conditionings and societal conditionings. And so I want to be able to have this conversation, whether it's privately or publicly with as many people as possible, so that we can allow queer and trans people an environment to thrive and to live their life where their lives don't have to be dominated by advocating for themselves, where we can just live our lives and have an inherent respect and dignity and be met with an inherent respect and dignity out within the world and within our communities. So I encourage people to come to me and ask questions. You can consult with me. I wanted to ask about that as we close up. You are going through medical school. You've already gone through a master's degree in yoga therapy. You have this lived experience and you have bills to pay. I would hope that if someone wants an hour of your time and your expertise, that there would be a way to exchange some prana for that. Do you have a website? Do you take consultations? If so, you know, what is the the fee range? Do you have any of that kind of information you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, I don't have a website yet just because medical school has been, especially this third year of medical school has been entirely overwhelming. And I've, I've struggled to regulate my own nervous system because of it. And then on top of it, all of this stuff and all these narratives on social media, it can be overwhelming. But yeah, I welcome people to consult with me on these topics. I will say that my consulting fees are no more than what a yoga therapy session is worth. How would they get in touch with you? Yeah. So you can contact me via email or you can contact me on my social media, which is future NMD. It's future period NMD period yogi or at queer trans thriving or my email is s ingram my last name i-n-g-h-r-a-m period yoga therapist at gmail.com so you're welcome to contact me through any of those streams i would love to have a website up but i only do so much Um, anybody out there wants to help stevie get that going as a gift we would gladly accept that so i would absolutely accept that I'll put all those in the show notes too. So thank you, Stevie. I know you need to get off into your day. I really appreciate your time, your focus, your energy, and your love. Yes. Thank you, Amy. And thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to maybe somewhat uncomfortable conversation, but I appreciate all of you being here. And if you do have any questions, please reach out. Okay. So let us wrap this up. Just in case you didn't get that, I'm going to put it in the show notes, but on Instagram, Stevie is future.mnd.yogi. Also, she has another Instagram called 
Queer Trans Thriving. And we forgot to announce the most important thing of the whole podcast, which is that in the fall of 2023, Stevie has a new podcast. So we had the original Queer Storytime on Instagram with 60 episodes. Now this is going to become a real podcast on all major podcast platforms for the audio version, but also on YouTube. This Queer Storytime podcast is going to hopefully be out by National Coming Out Day on October 11th, 2023. So I'm going to see if I can't get this podcast moved up into the queue so that we are supporting Stevie and everyone else on National Coming Out Day on October 11th. And we're in for a real treat. I listened to so many of those Queer Storytime episodes already. It is the lived embodied experience of real-time people going through this exploration of who am I? Why am I here? How can I become self-actualized? How can I be honest with myself and my loved ones and show up in a way that makes my insides and my outsides match and start to have not only an embodied experience in this lifetime, but an integrated experience, meaning I am showing up in the world the way that I feel comfortable showing up in the world. So thank you so much for listening. If you need some support for your nervous system around this topic at all, go to www.optimalstateyoganidra.com and you can get 12 free days of yoga nidra. That practice of bringing your senses inward and going into a deep state of relaxation and self-connection. That's a free course for anyone. And I'd love for you to do that to help support your own mind and body and nervous system. All right. Have a great day. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria and Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.